Hey, Rachel, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Oh, wow. Great question. All right. In my personal life, I think I would skydive. In my work life, I would ask for more money. Well, in today's episode, we're tackling risk-taking. We'll meet a woman who is excelling at work, but she's also playing it safe, and she's hitting a ceiling on her progress as a result. Why is it so hard to leave our comfort zones? And what strategies do we need to live a brave life? Let's figure it out. You want to tell me about G1? Definitely. So G1, G1 is a high performing program manager and she loves her job. She gives it everything she has. Her goal is to get promoted to director in two years and she's laser focused on doing anything she can to get there. But G1 has been harboring a secret about her success and her manager just uncovered it. During a one-on-one, Jiwon asked him what else she could do to expedite her next promotion. And he said that she needs to take more risk and that he wanted to see her show more authority during meetings. That if she wants to lead, he says she would have to develop executive presence. Her manager is right. Jiwon has been playing it safe. She doesn't speak up in meetings unless she knows she has the right answer. Before she says anything in public, she edits what she wants to say in her head until it sounds just right. She also only steps forward for opportunities where she's certain she'll do well. Jiwon hates being wrong. And because being wrong makes her feel like she's failing, she avoids it at any cost. She doesn't want to fail. She wants to get promoted, in fact. But it's clear she's going to have to make some changes if she wants to achieve her goal. So it sounds like Jiwon is trying to check every box before she allows herself to move to the next level or take the actions that it's going to take to get that promotion, which oftentimes women do, right? You mentioned this previously, Rachel, that women feel like they have to be 100% qualified for a role before they apply, whereas men only feel they need to be 60% qualified. So could you help us understand why is risk-taking so complicated for many women? Yeah, it's a really fascinating gender difference, and it does seem to be a significant difference, not for all women, and it doesn't mean all men are comfortable with risk, but enough so that we tend to see risk avoidance more of an issue for women than for men. I think a lot of it, like so many issues women face at work, goes back to how they grew up as girls. We know from research that girl children tend to be handled a little bit more delicately than boy children are. When girls get injured, their parents tend to react more intensely. They just are more reactive in general to girls' feelings than to boys. And I think we kind of have an expectation that boys are going to be rough and tumble and boys will be boys. But there's also a sense that we have to protect girls more. And so as a result, that can create a sense of danger for girls around risk-taking. It can also affect how comfortable they are are taking risks because risk-taking is a muscle. And if you don't flex that muscle, it atrophies. If you don't use it, you lose it. And also, if you've grown up with that pressure to please other people, if you get a sense of value for yourself when you do things that make other people happy, well, risk-taking is fundamentally about doing something uncertain, 
Like when you take a risk, you're not sure what's going to happen. You can't play it safe and be a risk taker. So if pleasing people is really important to you, you might be less likely to put yourself in the path of failure. And finally, I was thinking about an exercise that I like to do with students where, and Kelly, even though I can't see you, I'm going to ask you to do this. (laughs) I'm going to assume you're sitting in a chair right now. but I am. I always say, and I learned this from another professor, sit in your chair the way you imagine a typical cisgendered man sits in his chair. And you could just tell us, how are you sitting right now when you sit like a guy? Immediately, I made my legs position wider. My feet became more firmly planted on the floor. I kind of leaned back, almost went into like a gangster pose, if you will. (laughs) Are you doing a man spread? I think I am. I think you're man spreading. (laughs) All right, good. So now what would you do in your chair if I said to sit like a woman? How does a woman sit in a meeting, for example, when you used to actually see people and how they sat in the before times? It's a lot more crossed and balled up in a way. Like immediately I set up more straight. I crossed my legs. I shifted to the side on an angle, almost like I'm about to take a picture or something. It's quite interesting, the difference when you're conscious of it. Yeah, so totally isn't that, different. Isn't that exercise so cool? I love it because mm-hmm. I feel like it really illustrates gender norms. It illustrates it the unwritten rules that we grew up with about how guys and girls are supposed to look and act and eventually how women and men are supposed to look and act. And the message that women get and that girls get is you're not supposed to take up a lot of space. You're not supposed yep. to, and you're supposed to worry about how you look, right? Because I know, Kelly, you're kind of sitting, like you said, like you're about to have your photo taken. And that Mm -hmm. means you're probably sitting like kind of self-consciously. And so that really shows us the way that those unwritten rules about gender actually shape our ability and our comfort taking risks. It really shows us the rules that we are told to follow. And the more we become aware of how we've been socialized, the sooner we can start to undo it. I remember years ago, I randomly read a book about body language, and I oftentimes will listen to TED Talks related to it as well. And once someone points out the differences and what men are more likely to do versus women or poor communicators versus strong communicators then you almost become obsessed with not doing that thing. Women, for example, we are more likely to just nod incessantly, whereas men don't do that. And I think it's something about the way women want to make everybody feel good. They want to look like they're listening and they're so tuned in and we will nod ourselves to death in a meeting, whereas men will just kind of sit back, they're listening. They might give the occasional nod of approval, but not in quite the same way that women do. And and not to go off on a tangent, but don't you think that applies to to emails and email norms? So like as a woman, I feel like I always have to like add an exclamation point and like maybe an emoji and be like, I'm so sorry that it took me more than one minute to reply. Whereas like, I'll get like (laughs) two words back from a guy and you know, that guy clearly did not sweat like the email. And I don't want to generalize. I'm sure there are some guys who feel this pressure and some women who don't, but but don't you think that comes out in email too? Absolutely, I do. Email and text message. I'm like, man, if I don't add a LOL, then suddenly I have an attitude. I'm like, can't we just be regular? (laughs) You know, does everything have to be uh, sunshine and rainbows to protect other people's egos or what they might feel? We do a lot. And until we actually recognize it, we can't stop doing it. (laughs) So I agree with you. All right. With that said, what about if you are a person of color or another underrepresented minority at work? How does that affect your ability to take risks? 
I think when you are someone who doesn't look like other people at work and who sort of stands out is breaking a barrier in some way, people mm-hmm. will be watching you. They will scrutinize your behavior. We know from research that people will judge minorities' failures harshly. And when I say minorities, I mean an underrepresented minority in the workplace, not necessarily a minority in the world. And so if you know that you're being scrutinized and you know that your work will be judged in a way that's different from how other people's Mm -hmm. work is judged, you will probably be less likely to put yourself out there or go into an uncertain space because you won't really be able to control the outcome. And that could potentially put you in danger. It's very true. As a Black woman, I can't tell you how many times if if I find myself in a meeting and I'm the only woman and the only Black woman or at a conference and I'm the only Black woman, you suddenly get this feeling that you have to represent your entire race and that there is no room for error because now they're going to remember that, okay, this is how the Black people behave or the Black women behave. And it really can be a lot of pressure to push through in the moment. And do you realize how quickly you have to think? You have to ask yourself, am I going to put myself out there and really shine versus scaling back? Because again, you don't want to mess up or misrepresent. It's all very calculated and taxing. How do you deal with that, Kelly? Do you have any kind of strategies that you use to talk yourself through that reasoning? Um, I do. One, I put it into perspective that if I'm in that room, I'm there because I want to contribute something. So I just quickly allow myself to feel that, but then also dismiss the pressure of it. Like it all happens very quickly, but the reality is I am one person. I'm not representing the entire race. So I put it into perspective and I just think about what did I come there to accomplish and is what I'm about to say or the risk I'm about to take, does it put me closer to my goals or does it bring value to the room? And then once you start to realize that the positive outweighs the negative, which may never happen anyway, because you're just assuming something might go wrong, then you just go for it in the moment. And it's not saying every single time it's quite that easy, but it takes instant self-talk and putting your goals in perspective and doing what you came to do. That makes so much sense. That is brilliant. Keep your eye on your goals. Keep your eye on yourself as an individual and try not to get caught up in being that representative. Thanks, Rachel. So why does risk-taking even matter? Well, I think you just touched on it. I mean, being a risk-taker is how you shine. If we don't stretch beyond our comfort zones, we don't get to grow. We don't get to discover. We don't get to experience that exhilarating feeling of like, I did that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you play it safe, you don't get to be truly proud of accomplishing something you weren't sure you could accomplish in the first place. I also think that risk-taking is how we get more confident. Because I think we really only get confident when we prove to ourselves that we are more of something than we thought we were, right? So I like to play sports and try, you know, I've been mountain biking recently. I've been learning how to mountain bike. And if I, you know, go over a rock or I go over a route in the forest and I didn't think I could do that and then I do it, I think, wow, I am braver or stronger than I thought. That's how my confidence grows. It doesn't grow by avoiding the things that freak me out. This is how we move forward. It's how we grow. And if the sphere of our risk-taking is limited, like if we're just always playing by our own rules, Mm -hmm. I really don't think we get to grow and to be challenged in the ways that are really satisfying. That's so true. I love what you said about building a muscle 
That's so very true. I mean, think about any time we try something new. Like, our ego doesn't want us to fail. So we will avoid doing anything new or uncomfortable at all costs. But it's not until we do the thing. And even if we crash and burn at it, we are still that much better at the end of it. But we would never know that unless we try it in the first place. So I I love that about building the muscle. I'm also thinking about how sometimes as a person of color, you might shy away from your difference or you feel like it's making you stand out, but it can actually be a plus because people are more likely to remember what you did contribute, right? If you're in a room and everybody looks alike and you're the one person that looks different, instead of viewing it as a negative, look at it like a spotlight in a way. So absolutely love what you said I love that. Right. So instead of it's like, oh, look at the black lady who, you know, didn't do the right thing. It's like, look at the black lady. She's brilliant. She had the best idea in the room. Right. She just killed it. Exactly. Yep. That's a muscle that has to be built to change our way of thinking. So, again, love what you said about that. So one of the hardest things about taking a risk is all the anticipation that comes beforehand. Right. We get ourselves all worked up. So how can we prepare ourselves for risk? What kind of mindset do we need? Yeah, I mean, if you want to get good at risk taking, how you think about risk is actually as important. It might even be more important than what you do in the actual moment. Because I think anticipating, just getting yourself ready to leave your comfort zone is such a loaded time. And so a really helpful way to think about it is the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And this is a concept that was created by a Stanford professor, Carol Dweck, who wrote a book called Mindset, which has been incredibly popular in both business and education circles. And what she found when she studied how people are motivated and how they react in the face of a challenge is that there are two types of reactions, two types of mindsets that people bring to kind of an uncertain moment. The first is called a fixed mindset. Someone with a fixed mindset looks at a risk as an opportunity to prove how smart they are or how capable they are, which means if whatever happens doesn't go their way, they immediately think, oh, I must not be smart. So they kind of have a black and white view of the risk that they're taking. They're like, I have to nail this. Otherwise, it means I'm not capable. And so people who have a fixed mindset tend to be really stressed out when they face a risk or when they face a challenge. They tend to give up more easily because they lose their belief in themselves. And they're just less likely to be resilient and to keep it up because they think, oh, I guess I just might not be that good at this. The other mindset is called a growth mindset. And the growth mindset says, I have to practice at things over and over again. Like I have to flex that muscle if I want to get better at it. And so people with a growth mindset go into a risk by saying to themselves, I'm going to give it a try. If it doesn't work out, I'm going to try again. I don't have one shot here. I'm going to look at it as one moment in a process. It's not all about whatever happens in that one moment. Yes, I love the way that you explained that. And as I'm listening to you speak, I'm like, okay, so a person with a fixed mindset, the way they look at risk is more of a sink or swim situation. Whatever happens, like if it's a failure, then this is tied to my identity. Whereas a person with more of a growth mindset, they might perceive risk as more of an adventure, if you will. You don't really know what's about to happen when you go on an adventure. You just decide to embark on it and you're open to what may happen. If something amazing happens, great. But if not, you are already a little bit more primed 
for what could go wrong. So that's 100% on the money. And that's why the questions that risk takers can ask themselves as they get ready to go on that adventure, which is such a wonderful way to put it, is listen, what's the worst that could happen here, right? What is the worst that could happen if I take this risk? Can I live with that? And if you ask yourself that question and you're like, you know what, I can't live with that actually, then that just means you're (laughs) taking the wrong risk. Or maybe the risk you're taking is too dramatic and you need to just scale it back a little bit. But that's a great place to start because if you can deal with the worst that can happen, then you can take this risk. It means you can land on either side, success or failure, and you'll survive. A couple of other questions that really are useful are, why does this challenge matter to you in the first place? Because when you know why you care, you're much more willing to fight for it and endure those yucky feelings that you feel when you're getting ready to take a risk, right? And then like another question is, what are three ways that you could still come out ahead even if this risk doesn't go your way? So in this situation, Jiwon tries to take a risk. She speaks up in a meeting and maybe she doesn't say exactly what she wants to say, or maybe she has even the wrong answer. You could ask Jiwon, what are a couple ways that you could still come out ahead, even if you didn't say exactly what you wanted to say? And usually what people like Jiwon will say are things like, well, I proved to myself that I was braver than I thought. Or I threw my hat in the ring. I got heard and I hadn't been heard before. And when you can appreciate that there are benefits to the process, that you don't always have to win in order to win, that's when you really begin to spread your wings as a risk taker. So you mentioned, right, as we're talking about Jiwon and she's needing to become more brave. What does being brave actually look like? How would you describe it? Is it something flashy that you want to share on social media, you know, make a big to do about or, or could it be something a little bit more simple? Yeah, you know, it's not as attractive as something probably we want to share on social media, even though I think like in the media, we often see representations of bravery kind of generally as like somebody slaying the dragon or, you know, standing up to the man or doing some very flashy thing. But we don't actually learn to be brave that way. There are three traits of risk takers. The first is that they tend to choose small stakes risks to start out. So for example, in Jiwon's situation, if she wants to start speaking up in meetings, probably her first couple of times, she's not going to speak up at like a meeting where there are a lot of leaders present. Or maybe she won't speak up at a really big meeting, but she'll choose a situation that makes her nervous but not terrified. That's really key. We often hear that saying, do something that scares you every day. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be scared every day. Like I got (laughs) enough stuff to be scared about in my life, right? Living through a pandemic. Like I don't need to be scared every day. And also let's be honest, nobody's going to take risks if they feel like every time they do it, they're terrified. So it's not as flashy, but we're much more likely to take a risk if we do something that makes us nervous. So Jiwon's got to come up with something small stakes. And you know what? It might not even be that she speaks up in a meeting with her boss. Maybe she speaks up at like a meeting with a cross-function situation and that's where she wants to try it out. The second trait of risk takers is that they do it over and over again. So it's not like a one and done. It's not like you took your risk and you're done. Check. Now I'm going to go on to the next skill. Mm -hmm. You got to flex the muscle and you got to do it repeatedly. So look yes. for those opportunities. Jiwon needs to look for opportunities to continually flex her muscle. Let's say Jiwon's taking some online fitness classes and she's always taking the class with the same person. 
Maybe mm-hmm. taking a class with a new instructor makes her nervous, not terrified, flexes the muscle for the day. So all around us are opportunities to leave our comfort zone. We just have to decide to do it and to keep doing it. And then finally, the third trait is that risk takers hold themselves accountable. And one of the big ways they do that is just by telling somebody that they're doing it. So if Jiwon has a friend on her team or a close colleague, what she might want to say is, hey, listen, just had my one-on-one, found out that I need to take more risks. I really want to commit to trying to speak up once a week. And I want to talk to you about it and check in with you. And I'd love your moral support. And when somebody else knows you're doing it, it's a lot easier because you get support from them, but you also feel accountable to make it happen. And so again, small stakes, repeat what you're doing, flex that muscle and be accountable. And those are really the ingredients of a skillful risk taker. Makes so much sense. And I I love the piece about getting an accountability partner. That makes all the difference in the world, honestly. If you can have that person sort of looking at you with the hawk eye or they can nudge you or send you a signal when you're doing the opposite of what you said you were going to do, it makes all the difference. So great stuff. Yeah, like when I'm on my mountain bike, I'm so much more likely to go over something that scares me when there's a couple of women biking with me. But if I'm by myself, I'm (laughs) going to be on a gravel road. Like I don't want to go over anything scary unless there's somebody watching me cheering me on. Yeah. Having that audience does sometimes, right? It makes you more brave, you know, or you feel like there might be a chance that you'll inspire somebody else. So it kind of gives it, it's a little bit of a built-in reward if you do go for it. I can relate to that. Um, Even as you were speaking, it reminds me of a quote that says, the master has failed more times than the beginner has even tried, right? So Again, flexing that muscle is so key. And then there's another famous quote uh, from a Chinese philosopher, uh, Lao Tzu, and he says, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So I would love to hear from you, what's the first step for someone who wants to take more risk? It's such a good question. We really have to think about what drives us internally. We're not likely to want to take a risk for something that we don't care about. So I think when you imagine what makes your heart beat faster? Like what really gets you excited? Where do you want to change? Where do you want to develop? What are the things that you do, let's say at work, that you get really lost in? You know, you go into flow, you kind of lose track of time. The things that you would almost do for no money. I mean, you're going to get money, but like, let's say you had to do it for no money. You like it so much, maybe you would do it for no money. Those are the areas where you want to think about taking a first step with a risk where you can identify the places where you're willing to be uncomfortable because we're often just not willing to be uncomfortable if it doesn't matter to us. So asking ourselves, where are we willing to be uncomfortable? I like that a lot. Okay. So a lot of people, they tend to anticipate risk by expecting the worst. They predict something bad is going to happen, almost like a defense mechanism. Like if I expect the worst will happen, then I can't be surprised by it. Is that a good strategy? Is that healthy? Well, not really. I mean, (laughs) if you go to a risk and you're like, I'm going to do it, but I'm sure it's going to be a disaster. There's a name for it. It's called defensive pessimism. And it's a tool 
that we all use to some extent, um, maybe some people don't, but, but I think most of us at some point have used it and we use it to manage anxiety and to protect ourselves. If I imagine that I'm going to fail before I actually do, it won't hurt as much once it really happens because I told myself it was going to happen. Like I got myself ready for it. It's not clear whether or not women do this more than men, but there's no question that women find it acceptable to put themselves down, to be self-deprecating when they are close to any type of accomplishment. So for example, we know that oftentimes when we compliment a woman, her first response is going to be, oh no, no, not me. Like I'm, you know, you look so pretty today. Oh my God, no, I look gross. Or like, I really like your sweater. Oh, I got it for a dollar. And so when (laughs) women get in that space, of putting themselves down, it becomes really easy to sit there and say, oh, I'm sure I'm going to fail, right? I'm going to go up for a promotion. I'm sure I'm going to fail. I'm going to try to get this new role. I'm sure I won't get it. It can make you feel a little bit better to manage your anxiety this way. But what research shows is that people who do this often end up having negative thoughts about themselves because of course, like if you start thinking to yourself, I'm going to mess this up, it's not too far to travel before you're kind of thinking, well, maybe I'm not that smart or maybe I'm not that qualified or what if I screw up and I get Mm -hmm. fired? And so all of those negative thoughts can lower our self-esteem, can elevate our depressive symptoms. And so in the long run, it's not a great tool to propel you forward because we're motivated more by fear than by the desire to succeed. I used to do this. I will say I'm a recovering expect the worst person. And I'll tell you how I recovered from it. I found that the more comfortable I was failing at something, the easier it was to be in uncertainty. I'll tell you how I did it. I used to send lots of op-eds to the New York Times, actually. And I have been published in the New York Times before, but never on the opinion page. And when I first started sending them in, I would be like, oh, I'm sure I'm going to get rejected like over and over again. And I was. And each time I got rejected, I thought, see, I knew it. I'm glad that I predicted that. But then this weird thing happened, which was maybe on the fifth or sixth time, I sent it in and I didn't feel like I needed to say it wasn't going to happen for me because I already knew what it was like to fail and it wasn't so bad. It was like my failure muscle was strong enough that when I sent it in, I thought, hey, what if I get published? Like I didn't need to spend time worrying about it because I already knew I was going to be okay. So I think people will find that the more comfortable you get with failing and the more comfortable you get with risk and knowing that you will survive, that even if the worst happens, it'll be okay. You don't really need to spend time worrying about it ahead of time. You can focus more on what it is you're going for. Absolutely. And you broke that down so well that I'm over here like, yes, you are right. That is the worst strategy that we could ever really do for (laughs) ourselves. It's like laying the foundation to failure. In fact, like follow the failure road versus what you described, like just taking it as a buffer in a way like, okay, you failed a couple of times. It's time to move forward. So thank you for explaining that in that way. So everybody listening it's a horrible strategy to think the worst out of the gate thanks for that rachel all right kelly well i hope you're feeling inspired to get out there and take some risks i know i am i hope jiwan is um thanks for joining me yes thank you rachel i'm absolutely ready i'm going to be asking myself what's the worst that can happen every time and looking at it as an adventure more than a risk amazing stuff thank you
Looking Up, a Unity podcast, has been brought to you by PayPal, developed in partnership with Rachel Simmons, and produced by Wheelhouse Media. A special thank you to Jocelyn for use of her incredible song, Speak Up.